Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angles on these different issues. On this week's Current Account, I'll be talking about Russia and Ukraine. So in 2022 and in early 2023, following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we did a number of podcasts trying to cover the sanctions regime, the impact of that regime, as well as the impact of the conflict itself on both the Russian and the Ukrainian economies, including in March this year when I recapped my Senate testimony on the effectiveness of sanctions. But it's been a while since we discussed this, so we thought it would be a good time to catch back up on the situation there highlighting the effectiveness of the sanctions regime and what is going on with Russia and Ukraine economically. Clearly, the biggest issue is the continued war in Ukraine. And being a non-military expert, this seems to have settled into a dreadful and protracted war with offensives and counteroffensives that, again, in my small mind, seem to be making as much progress as the infamous trenches of World War I. Now, This should not discount Ukraine's ability to defend its homeland against a much larger military force, because that still remains highly impressive. But the ongoing stalemate is likely to have economic implications, particularly from the amount of expenditures that will be done in both treasure and in blood that needs to be expended to continue such a campaign. As for Russia, the U.S., Europe, and a number of other countries implemented the most far-reaching financial sanctions program against Russia after it invaded Ukraine. In addition, a number of these countries have put in fairly significant trade restrictions, particularly export-controlled items. Those are usually related to military issues. And then in 2023, embargoes on the importation of oil and other petroleum products as well as a novel sanctions regime to cap the price of exported oil from Russia. All of these things were done. Now, what was the purpose of these sanctions? First and foremost, and the one that obviously did not work, which was to deter Russia from taking certain actions. But then beyond that, it was to shock Russia's economic and financial system and to ultimately squeeze the Russian economy to harm it and maybe over time change what they were doing. Thus far, the returns on these sanctions have been mixed and, frankly, seem to be trending downward. Russia's economy, which took a fairly decent hit in 2022, has bounced back in 2023, particularly during the second half of the year. Our economists at IIF think that Russia could grow more than 3% in 2023 and could maintain that roughly in 2024, depending in large part on oil prices. These forecasts are above the IMF and some of the other market analysts out there, but all of those institutions would note that Russia has experienced positive economic growth in 2023. Much of this, of course, is due to the rise in oil prices in the second half of the year, but a lot of it is due to Russia's ability to adapt to the sanctions regime that was implemented. So in terms of financial sanctions which is probably the area where the United States is a leader in the world in terms of having the right type of infrastructure, enforcement mechanisms, etc. Russia's been able to find ways to overcome this. And part of that was because Russia had come under the sanctions regime back in 2014 when it invaded Crimea. And so they had adjusted their financial system and their markets in some ways to make them less dependent on 
definitely the United States, but even to a certain extent, Western Europe. In terms of trade restrictions, IIF economists have just put out a paper this week which shows that while direct trade to Russia from countries adhering to the sanctions program is way down, if you look at indirect trade, so in other words, trade that goes from these economies, including the United States, to Russia's neighbors has actually skyrocketed. This does suggest that Russia has been able to actually import the types of items that it needs, not directly from countries that put these restrictions on, but indirectly from its neighbors. So in that respect, it undermines at least a portion of the trade restrictions that were put in place. As for the oil price cap, we tried to cover this back last December in episode 25. The oil price cap is a supplement to the embargo that was placed on Russian oil and other petroleum products to Europe. And the supplement was that there would be a cap that would be placed on ships carrying Russian oil to third-party countries. And the cap would be implemented through insurance. You have to insure these products. For a while, it looked like in the first part of this year that the cap was actually working. However, I think that it largely suggests that the cap was working because the oil prices around the world were actually under the price of the cap. Since oil prices have risen above it, what we have seen is largely that the oil price cap can be gotten around. The way to do that is through, one, there are countries out there that aren't willing to do such an oil price cap, that are more than willing to buy Russia's oil, maybe at a discounted price, but not under the oil price cap. Second, there has been invoicing problems, which would basically be essentially close to something like fraud, but basically it's uh, paperwork that shows that, hey, we're adhering to this oil price cap but you're actually not really doing that because of just you're cutting a side deal. And third, there have just been replacements, replacements in both oil tankers. The Russians have been able to get some replacements. And in terms of insurance, the idea was that insurance seemed to be centered around G7 countries. Well, maybe that's not necessarily the case. This is always the case, I think, with sanctions regimes, which are countries do try to figure out ways to get around them. That's not exactly shocking. But then that means that you need to have fairly strict enforcement mechanisms. And I think in the oil price cap case, the problem has been that it is very novel. And it's not an area that the United States is a dominant player on, or Europe is even a less dominant player on because they're mainly an importer of energy products. So this has allowed Russia, I think, to get around a lot of this. The impact overall then has been not very substantial. In fact, actually, Russia has been able to run a current account surplus. It's not nearly as significant as it was in 2022, but it has allowed money to continue to flow into the country. This has also allowed it to run while it's running budget deficits. It's not nearly as dramatic a budget deficit, I think, as people were expecting. This obviously is not a good thing if you are in favor of pressuring Russia because the expenditures that Russia can use are going to be used in some respects for military purposes to continue its war in Ukraine. So overall, the sanctions regime has had some impact, and I don't want to discount that at all, but it has not been nearly as significant as I think some of the policymakers thought that it might be. As for Ukraine, in 2022, GDP declined in Ukraine by roughly 30%. 
Now, let me put that into perspective. In the United States, that would be the equivalent of the United States getting rid of the economies of California, New York, and Texas combined. Those are our three biggest states. So having a 30% GDP decline is huge. In 2023, Ukraine has actually seen a modest recovery with GDP growing by close to 3%. But clearly, as my last point made, this is often an abysmally low base. So I think that it looks like Ukraine is settling into what would be known as a war economy footing. They're getting used to being in war. And so we're starting to see a little more economic activity. It also means that fiscal expenditures for Ukraine are going to be significantly higher. And that's because they need to spend money, particularly on military support, to continue the war and to continue to push Russia back. And this turns us a little bit towards the United States. In the United States, we have been fairly supportive of Ukraine, particularly its military, which is probably the most important thing but also its economy. And because we knew the budgetary hole that has been opened up in Ukraine is very large. And so we've been doing this over the last year and a half, but then the Biden administration put forward a supplemental request for roughly $60 billion for Ukraine. 45 billion of it would be for military assistance, and the remainder, 15 or 16, would be for humanitarian and economic assistance. This has gotten tied up in political battles here in the United States. Now, the political battles seem to be around a variety of things. First, there are those within particularly the Republican Party, and actually really the Republican Party on the House of Representatives, which is the majority, who think we should stop supporting Ukraine, or we should support Ukraine with much more limitations on that support. But probably more importantly, it has gotten tied up in very huge debates in the United States about overall spending and in what actually became the battle in the U.S. Republicans among figuring out who would be the Speaker of the House. Now it's tied up a little bit with support for Israel on financial assistance and some other aspects as well. So anyway, the main thing is right now Ukraine has not received this support and some of that financial support as well and practically maybe and more importantly military support is going to be a necessary item in order to continue this war going forward. So as we head into the winter, a number of factors are going to be very important. How cold is this winter? Is it going to affect energy prices around the world, particularly in Europe, which in the past was very dependent on Russian energy sources? Is it going to affect the war itself? Or are we going to see sort of the stalemate continue, particularly because it's harder to fight during a winter? Is this going to impact Russia's economy or Ukraine's economy? If oil prices go up, you would think that that actually is beneficial to Russia. And then finally, is the United States Congress going to be able to see fit to provide more financial assistance to Ukraine going into 2024? All of these are some pretty important questions, and some of them are fairly negative in my view, but hopefully things will start turning around in a more positive way. So now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways 
Two things I'm looking forward to and my one sports fact. My three main takeaways are first, the sanctions regime put in place to impact Russia has only had mixed results. And most recently, those mixed results are actually not very positive. Second, the Russian economy has actually done much better than I think anybody would have predicted back in early 2022. And that seems to be continuing as we lead into 2024. And third is the Ukraine economy has rebounded slightly, but is still in fairly desperate situation as the war continues in that country. The two things I'm looking forward to are first, as we head into the winter and we come up against the budget ceiling again, now it's a two-part budget ceiling, which will be one in January and a second in February. Can Congress see its way to actually providing financial support for Ukraine going forward? And second is what is Ukraine going to do with its presidential elections? So their presidential elections are supposed to be held in March of next year. But there's obviously some significant questions about whether they should hold them or not, given the circumstances in the country. We'll see, because obviously that could call into question the democratic capabilities of Ukraine. So we'll see how that develops. And now for my one sports fact. The United States recently just celebrated Thanksgiving. During Thanksgiving, which is a great time to bring your family together and to give thanks for those things that you do have in life, it's also a time for, frankly, watching football games in the United States, both at the professional level, but also in college football. And the college football is also done. It's usually the rivalry week. But it wasn't the rivalry week I was thinking about. It's kind of the strange names that we have for college football games that take place during that time. And I was thinking about this as I was watching my alma mater play in what's called the Commonwealth Cup. And let me just say, as I was excited for my team to play its biggest rival and an in-state rival, we got slaughtered. Now, Right now, my producer is jumping on the mute button so that he could not guffaw and laugh out loud at me right now because he went to my rival college. But beyond that, there are other rivalries that are out there. There is something in Mississippi where the University of Mississippi plays Mississippi State, and they named that the Egg Bowl. I actually don't know why that is. In the state of Washington, Washington plays Washington State in the Apple Cup. I do believe I know that because I think apple is like the main fruit of Washington. Iowa plays Minnesota in what is for a bronze pig statue, which is named after Floyd, the pig. Indiana battles Purdue, and that's an in-state rivalry, for the old oaken bucket. And interestingly enough, the lumberjack and Canadian and American folk hero Paul Bunyan's likeness is up for grabs in a couple of games. Michigan plays Michigan State for the Paul Bunyan Trophy, and Minnesota faced Wisconsin for Paul Bunyan's axe. Okay, for those of you who are not from the United States, you can, you can stop laughing right now. I'm done with the, some of the college names, but that is what we do play for in this country. The axe, the old oaken bucket and the pig, as well as for pride, which I have none after my university's dismal football performance. So that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. 
All our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and goodbye.